returns. Apologies for our uh, missed show last week. Brad was uh, Brad was down in Turks and Caicos on vacation. Understandably so. We understand. Got to get down and get some sun. That being said, Brad, we did miss the pod. I had a lot of questions. A lot of people, where's the pod? Where's the pod? We're back. We got a lot to get to. We cannot get through all the games from last week, obviously, but in the last seven days, we'll certainly get through a lot of the recent action, a lot of the trends, bubble stuff, as always. And a few kind of, uh, you know, different topics here and there that we we like to get into, obviously, throughout the year. Steely Ignite, one of them that we uh, that has been in the news lately. We wanted to want to get get some stuff off our chest there. But Brad, um, the the grind never stopped. I know you were I know you were working hard while in uh, while down in Turks and Caicos, despite uh, you know trying to follow the Friars, trying to keep up on the bubble. What what, what was the uh, what was the setup like? Also, the, the uh, hotel had the ESPN stations, including the SEC network, but did not have Fox Sports One or CBS Sports Network. So I was out on the Big East, but I was watching what Iowa State Houston and I watched in its entirety. I watched a lot of Ole Miss and Missouri. I watched Baylor BYU. Right, that was Wednesday. So I I got a lot of late night basketball in, which is good. And then now for maybe the past two weeks, and certainly for the next two weeks or two and a half weeks, um, every morning starts with me waking up and checking T-Rank, going on team cast, flipping wins and losses. I I mean, I'm completely addicted. Um, (laughs) Yesterday was like an unbelievable bubble day for fans of bubble teams, you and I included. Uh, Both of our teams sat out, right? They had the bye week. Like, Every bubble team lost except for Wake Forest and Gonzaga. Like, there were teams I didn't even realize were bubble teams, like Drake and Grand Canyon that lost. Like, Iowa is now a bubble team. Ohio State's now a bubble team. I guess they won today. But um, there's just teams coming out of the woodwork. And, and, And they're all losing. I do think this is not all that abnormal, where you just get to this point in the year... And there's not a lot going on, and all these bubble teams have played themselves out, and then all of a sudden someone wins three straight, and you're like, oh, well, like maybe, right? Like Iowa did that; they went at Michigan State. Like, oh, you know, maybe if they beat Illinois, they're they're kind of interesting. Uh, they lose that game. I still think Iowa maybe has like a little bit of a run in them, but um, you know, these are all like you know, 10% or lower probabilities of you know being serious contenders. Whereas you know, obviously we we, we have our core group. I will say maybe the the, the, the biggest hypothetical loser who didn't lose quite as much because of the bad bubble day was New Mexico. Uh, New Mexico basically punched its ticket to the NCAA tournament by beating Colorado State. You're looking at it you're like, all right, how do they screw this up, right? They they have all these you know these great wins in the non you know in the conference season at home. They've not won it. In, they've won it in Nevada. Like all they have to do is beat Air Force at home and Fresno at home, and I think they're in the tournament no matter what happens. They turn around, they lose to Air Force at home as like an 18-point favorite. Um, just like a complete disaster. Good good news for the Lobos is that the uh, the metrics did not drop as much as you you might have expected. They do still have a decent resume. Uh, it's not over yet for them, but uh, things did just get interesting and uh, certainly would be beneficial to them if they can go win on the road at Boise next weekend. But uh, yeah, unless so they, they're a very interesting team cast team. Yes. Because they have 
two games you're supposed to lose, right, at Utah State and at Boise, plus a 20-point favorites against Fresno. So T-Rank has a last, – last time I ran the team cast, if they went one and two where they beat Fresno and lose the two road games, they are like the last team in. They're just hanging on by a thread. Yeah. And obviously I think we all can agree – if they go two and one and pick up another quadrant one road game, then they are good to go. Right. Um, despite Nevada kind of hanging around and Colorado State slipping a little bit, six bids is still looking looking strong. It's unbelievable because you have teams in the Mountain West, including New Mexico. New Mexico may be the best example of this, whose resumes are entirely just the Mountain West, right? New Mexico's resume. Like, their wins in the non-conference are Louisiana Tech at home, UC Irvine at home. I think both of those are still quad three right now. They're, like, very borderline quad two, quad three. Like, that, that's all they accomplished. Their, their resume is they beat San Diego State, they beat Utah State, they beat Nevada twice, they beat Colorado State. They beat uh, – and, and that's it. That, that's the resume, right? So, look, I, I, I see a world where things get very hairy. It'd be nice for them to win one on the road. Um you know, Colorado State's in good shape despite the fact they haven't won anything on the road because they beat Creighton on a neutral. Also beat Washington on a neutral, which is a decent win. Beat Boston College on a neutral. That doesn't suck. So, I think Colorado State's still in on, still line for like an eight seed. But, like, yeah, the, the six-bid the six thing is, is very alive and well. And I think it, I think you're guaranteed one goes to Dayton, right? Like, I think it's impossible. Right now, a lot of them aren't projecting that. But it just feels impossible for the Mountain West not to get one in Dayton. Uh, I think if you're projecting, it's like one Mountain West team, one Big East team. Gonzaga if they don't win the WCC and then like one other team I think is the the, the first four um but yeah like the, the, it, it's 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 really a fascinating situation um it'd be very interesting to see you know who can who can screw it up right New Mexico losing an Air Force is one of the only ways you could really screw it up right as long you know Nevada what what do they have left they're probably like one of the hairier like they're in decent shape you know it'd be great if they could win at Boise or at Colorado State but I think if they beat UNLV at home on March 9th and go two and two down the stretch, they'll be a tournament team. Uh, Boise, you know, 10 and four in the league. Now they have three games still against the top. So again, one and three, maybe it gets hairy, but I think for now, everyone's in okay shape. And unless really, unless people emerge on the bubble, I think the Mountain West is going to get six bits. And UNLV is kind of gone from a thorn in everybody's side to, Maybe a decent, right? Because because they're they're right on the cusp of the top seventy-five. They're eighty, would, I believe, in the net. They're, so they're kind of one big win away from getting that top seventy-five, and then they're erasing some bad losses, some good wins to, I mean, to the other. The, the funny, the funny but, thing, the funny thing with UNLV is if UNLV did not lose to. Southern U and to Air Force, they're a bubble team right now. Yeah, T T rank has them at like maybe twelfth out or something when I checked earlier. So, like they um, have two ghastly losses, and they're still like, and a third not very good against Loyola Marymount, and they're still like not that far off because they beat Creighton, they beat New Mexico, they won on the road at Boise, they won on the road, they 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 uh they won on the road at New Mexico, so they swept New Mexico. Obviously, again, they would just be Colorado State. Like, UNLV is a really talented team. It'd be interesting to see, you know, how it shakes out. Can they be a bid stealer? 
Um, you know, they do. They have, they have you know, still San Diego State and, and Nevada left. So it's, it's, it's interesting. I mean, it really is a seven and four split, not a uh, not a six and five. And then where do you stand on the great ACC Mountain West Wars of of uh, 24? I think the ACC is probably a better league because they have better it's definitely better league. teams. But the Mountain West is just, again the Mountain West has done picture perfect bid maximization, right? The ACC could have seven bids too if NC State at 17 and 10 didn't lose at home to Syracuse. Like like you got to clear the field. All these teams are not clear in the field. NC State's muddling along. Syracuse is muddling along. Florida State's muddling along. Here's Virginia Tech, 15 and 12, losing to you know Notre Dame, but you turn around and beating Virginia by 40. Like, you know, it's just tricky. So yeah, like the ACC is a slightly better league. The Mountain West has been much better for making the tournament. Right? It's a, it's an arbitrary cutoff, right? Right. Like, that that's exactly what I was gonna say. Is picking tournament is pick is picking roughly what this year the top 46 ish teams. Yes. So the Mountain West has more teams. Top 46, but like, I mean, San Diego State is by far the least scary of all the top four projected seeds, right? Like, everyone has San Diego State as a four seed right now. Like, you take those 16 teams that are that are projected to be seeded one through four are dead last, right? Like, give me San Diego State before Auburn, Alabama, Baylor, all the like. Like not even close. Um, whereas the ACC, Duke and UNC, I think we're both taking them over every Mountain West team. The middle of the ACC is obviously much stronger. The issue is the ACC has 15 teams, which is a huge drag when ha- you know more than half the league is floating around 500. Um, but but the ACC still isn't very good right that's that's where the acc fans are losing me right because number one yes the acc is a better league but as as we said making the tournament is this arbitrary top 46 ish cutoff um which the mountain west just happens to have more teams um the mountain west doesn't have a round robin having closer to a round robin i think helps immensely you know being able to play a team a second time and it could be a road game, and that's you know quadrant one game. Whereas in the ACC, you're pretty much playing everybody once, and only less than half the league twice. Yeah. Well, in the Mountain West so, has also kind of become almost like the Big Twelve, um, in the ten-team Big Twelve era, where it's just like when you're do something in the non-conference, and then win your home games in your tournament team. Right, and they all scheduled pretty well. Um, with like this Goldilocks schedule of playing teams that are just worse enough that you're going to beat most of them. And they'll, they'll, they'll give you a little bit of value. Um, but like the whole wake forest thing, like I, I think wake forest is definitely one of the top 46 teams in the country. But when you start coming to me and saying they have all these great wins and you're pointing to Syracuse and NC state like, come on, guys. Like, you can't be talking out of one side of your mouth of, oh, I hate seeing these mediocre 500 
power six schools in the NCAA tournament. And then when it comes time to fluff up Wake Forest resume, talk about wins over NC State. Um, look, Wake has earned its spot in the tournament by beating Duke. Uh, obviously, game they needed. Um, kind of on, on the ball game itself, I thought the two main factors were one, Efton Reed being able to stay on the floor. So you don't just get killed by Filipowski because you know when they had to play Matthew Marsh in the first meeting, it was ugly. And they had to play Zach Keller, he was ugly, right? F didn't stand on the floor as big. The other thing to me with that game, I felt like Booby Miller had really struggled in high-level games. Um, I'm looking at his, you know, tier A Ken Palm, and, and the numbers aren't like horrific, but you know, the shooting numbers have been really bad in those games. He's like 27% for three. And, and before the wake, you know, the, the Duke game over the weekend, we had 15.5 assists, one turnover. I mean, look back, three points against Duke at Cameron. Nine points on eight shots at four turnovers against Virginia. Um, you know, the road loss, you know, the road loss to North Carolina, he's two, five points, two for 12. Like, he has just not played well in their biggest opportunities. And so, for me, just needed to see him be the, you know, Robin to Hunter Salas' Batman. And obviously, Salas was phenomenal. I think we all agree that Wake is a team that no one wants to see in the NCAA tournament just because they have high, high-level guards and they have size. Uh, and that combination is very scary. Um, trap game Tuesday against Notre Dame. Got to find a way to win it um, on the road. And then I think if they if they split Virginia Tech on the road and Clemson at home, they're like a lock lock. And if not, then it's a little bit touch and go. And it's it's funny because they're at five bids now. Yeah. They'll probably be at five bids. But Virginia looks abhorrent and 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 saturday i was able to watch a, literally a full day of basketball i sat there the whole day and watched 12 hours of basketball and i wanted to watch the first half of unc in virginia then i was going to switch over to alabama kentucky for the second half but given that was a blowout i stayed on that unc virginia game the whole time Virginia is just like they are they're like the least scary offensive team like I've ever seen. And I get that they have a very good defense. Two of the best defenders in the country with Beekman and Dunn. It didn't feel like their defense was like suffocating UNC despite the score. It just felt like every time they had the ball, you, you were just like, there's no way that they're going to score. Like, Rhodey's missing open threes. Beekman and McNeely are trying to get to the rim, and they're way off. Ryan Dunn is pump faking open catch-and-shoot three-pointers. You know, they're getting very little from the five spot. It's just – it's funny because in the preseason, I think we both had them, you know, in like the 30s. They started off pretty strong. Then when they went into their slide, we came on here and we're like, we don't see how Virginia's ever going to turn it around at this rate, given they're going to lose Beekman and Dunn to the NBA. Um, so, so we were like, this is a lost season and it's not going to get any better. Um, they, they went on a huge winning streak, and now they're kind of back to where we were in early January, where it's like, I get it. Technically, they could still sneak in and probably will. Um but as you were saying, Wake is a team nobody wants to see. Despite the defense and the coaching 
acumen of Tony Bennett, I think everyone would kill to see Virginia in their first-round matchup. Look, I think Virginia's offensive struggles have been magnified in the last you know two weeks because they haven't made outside shots. Um, four for 14 against Pitt, four for 13 against Wake, uh, two for 12 against Virginia Tech, two for 14 against North Carolina. You make a couple more, you know, you're you're at least a com- you're you're at least not embarrassing offensively. But there is a clear lack of weapons here, right? And I think stylistically, even like again. They 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 had like a bit of a bump when they started playing a little bit more traditionally without Groves at the five, right? So Groves is making threes. He's at 49% still for the year. Groves is making threes. Jordan Minor was was giving them something as a five. Uh, you know, Buchanan had started to kind of earn back the trust and was screening it. Like they just they have no presence offensively. Like when they need a basket, where where do they go? They don't have a way, they don't have a way of just posting the ball. And scoring through that, they can't just isolate Beekman because he's not like a shifty or explosive scorer. It's really rough. And look at me. How about this? Virginia has not won an NCAA tournament game since the night they won the national championship. And I'm not convinced they're winning one this year. I'm not. I'm not 100% convinced they're making the tournament. So they have three games left, right? They have at Boston College, at Duke, I believe, and then Correct. home Georgia Tech. Correct. If they go one and two with the win being Georgia Tech, when I last checked, T-Rank had them as still in. So it's going to be hard to get them out at this point. Um, I, I guess depending on bid thieves and what, what happens in, in the ACC tournament, which in all my projections, I haven't con- even con- considered conference tournaments yet because that could go in a million different directions. Um but I could easily see them losing both those road games at Boston College and Duke. Is 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 that going to drag them down enough? Look, I'll, I'll say this. I do not understand how Seton Hall, how we can sit here and say, oh, Seton Hall's a bubble team. Seton Hall not, might not get in. If Seton Hall gets in, they're stuck going to the first four because, you know, they didn't play. You know, they, they don't have enough, you know, their metrics are bad. They don't have enough whatever. And then say Virginia is going to be a tournament. Like it's gonna be a tournament team for sure. But like, if you want to say Virginia's got enough and they're they're probably gonna be the first four because their metrics, I'll buy I'll buy that, right? Like Virginia, I, I think Virginia is kind of a prime first four type team. But like, I am they're really bad. Like offensively, they are awful. And I do think again, look, I think we said this in early January when they were struggling. Like, I think you start to think big picture. Like, is there a way out here? And is there it, it, what is the timeline on that to work? And is Tony Bennett around for that timeline? I agree, hundred percent. Like why? Like uh, why are they getting better next year? Sorry, sorry, Brett. Like are, are why are they getting better next year when they lose Reese Beekman and Ryan Duff? But it's it's going to be breakouts from you know Gertrude and McNeely and everybody, but. Um, I mean that's that's how Virginia gets better. I, but I mean, if you're telling me next year their lineup, you know, is Gertrude and McNeely and Rhodey, who's been horrible, and Buchanan, and then like a transfer, that that doesn't excite me. Right. And look, I mean, look who they went out in the portal and got this past year. They got Rhodey, who is a 
you know, a, a low major guy who put up numbers, but was not like a, he was not like the most heavily recruited of the low major portal guys. Lacked he was a great pickup on paper though. Yeah, and yeah, I think Creighton was involved. I think a bunch of teams you know, really wanted him. So that was the, the, the Rody was the best get and he's under 40% effective field goal percentage. They took Dante Harris, which was insane. They took Dante Harris. Yeah. Oh my God. <laughs> they took Jacob Groves, who was like pure role player, and they took Jordan Minor from you know Merrimack, who was again that was that was a, that was a mid you know he's a mid mid plus type guy, right? Like he was, I'm not convinced he was like benched and then he was their savior and now he's back on the I, I don't know what's going on with him, but I'm not convinced that Virginia is going to be able to go in the portal, especially with the style that they play, and go get like a dude at point guard, right? Which is what they need because Leon Bond's not a point guard. Jer- Elijah Gertrude's not a point guard. If Dante, you know, Rody's not really a point guard. If Dante Harris starts a point guard for Virginia next year, Christian Bliss, like if Christian Bliss is starting a point guard for Virginia next year, we're in trouble, man. We're in real trouble. So, I don't know. Look, I, I don't want to be too negative. I think Tony Bennett's a phenomenal basketball coach. He's, you know, forgotten more about basketball than I'll ever know. Won a championship. He earned that benefit of the doubt. But, um, it is hard to watch 49, 41, and 44 in three straight games and not be worried about the long term here. Yeah, I mean, he, he's not the only coach who is extremely highly regarded and you know, not even the most locked in college basketball obsessed fans. Like question what they're doing and turned out to be right. Like like the whole Tom Izzo thing of the center in the portal or the wing in the portal, and Cooley's roster, Patino taking eleven transfers and it's not working out. Like uh, I, I think CBS right had that report earlier that like every team that took more than seven transfers is like a dumpster fire right now. Um, it's not in this new age of roster building. These legendary coaches don't seem to be that that far ahead of the curve. Well, let's talk Michigan State, um, and that can be our foray into the Big Ten. But you know, obviously, I think they're the biggest story. Two home losses this past week now to Iowa and Ohio State, two NIT teams. Again, I give Ohio State credit. They battled back, got, got big stops. Akpara was really good down the stretch. Uh, I thought Devin Royal gave them a really big boost. They hit the boards hard. like They were physical. They just outworked Michigan State. Right, this wasn't shooting. Obviously, Dale Bonner had the big shot, but this was three for 17 from three for Ohio State, but 13 offensive rebounds, a lot of second chance points, a lot of like just get deep, 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 deep with, you know, whether you're posting guards or posting bigs, just get get as good position as you can and, and battle. And then one game, you know, low scoring game, Izzo kind of out of the blue starts Xavier Booker. He has some bright moments, but in the you know, closing time, it's, Sissoko on the floor. Again, they get pummeled on the interior. What's the answer here? Like, not to say that Xavier Booker is all of a sudden going to stop you from, you know, he's going to stop post-ups because Xavier Booker is is very skinny. But Xavier Booker at least provides something. He's a, he, he's interesting. He can space the floor a little bit. He can block shots a little bit. I don't understand what we're seeing. And, and so, look, I mean, Michigan State is 17-11. and 11. Assuming that they – don't either win the Big Ten tournament or win the national championship. And we could also just add, don't beat Purdue at Purdue on Saturday. 
Michigan State is going to lose 13 games or more in four consecutive seasons. Four straight. They go first four in 2021. 2022, they go to the second round with a an average team that started 14-2, and 5-0, and then faded down the stretch. And then last year, obviously, a team that, again, sort of faded in Big Ten play, never really got over the hump, won 19 regular season games, you know, pulled the upset on Marquette, but then, you know, lost the Sweet 16. And now this group, you know, all the expectations, you know, they are 17-11, 9-8, in a Big Ten that I think we would both agree, Brad, is not has not been very good, right? The Big Ten is down. Agreed. So, so to be here, 9-8, and eight, and like, again, le- this team will likely make the NCAA tournament. I'm not saying they're not going to make the tournament. I think they will make, I think they will make the NCAA tournament. But the idea that Michigan State has sort of like faded into some like deluxe Jim Beheim under Tom Izzo is a little scary, right? I mean, this was this was Jim Beheim before the end, right? Like the Malachi Richardson team, Tyler Ennis team was the last like really good one, right? And then it just kind of went toward the bubble with good good NCAA tournament success, and then eventually it slipped to no postseason at all. Uh, so so maybe that's the path we're on. But um, yeah, for Michigan State, like for Texas, for Wake Forest. As long as they don't like lose out, they're going to be like a nine seed. Um, you know, Michigan State and Texas, and I guess you could throw Villanova and A and M in there with um, they're they're more against the eight ball with the quantity of losses, but like Texas and Michigan State could get there too, like Cincinnati as well. Um, so as long as Michigan State doesn't lose out, they're they're going to make the tournament. Uh, but yeah, this was a team people thought was going to be a one or a two seed in the preseason. Um, the talent level just doesn't pop like it did on paper in October. Um, and the fact that they still can't get anything from their center spot after, what, 80% of the season's over, 85% of the season's over, is like kind of crazy. I, I, I didn't have a ton of faith in this for some, but I figured by the end of the year, at least, like, Carson Cooper would get the nod as, like, a glue guy or, like, Xavier Booker would pop, right? I didn't expect us to still be doing this uh, center roulette going into March. Yeah, look, I think the story of the year for Michigan State is that every time it feels like the turn, the, the page, you know, has been turned, that they've, they've, they've finally gotten over the hump, right? Like, you look back, like, you're like, all right, like, you beat Illinois, you win two straight road games after that. All right, like here we go, right? Like here comes Michigan State. You know, they're playing better. You know, they're gonna you know, they're gonna wind up as a you know 20, 21, 22 win team with veteran guards and it's Izzo. Like like they're gonna be dangerous. And then you look up and you see Ohio, you know, lose at home to Iowa in a game that quite frankly wasn't all that close. Like Iowa controlled that game for the tip. And then to turn around after that and lose a game against Ohio State that you led the whole way. I mean, you were up – they were up 50-38 to 38 with 11 minutes to play and lost that game. They scored – what? They scored six points in the final six minutes of the game. 
excuse me, no, they scored three points in the final six minutes of the game. Scored five points in the final nine minutes of the game. Just can't happen. Just can't. So, I don't know. Look, I, I think at the end of the day, I think at the end of the day with Michigan State, again, it's going to be on Izzo's time timeline. But why are we convinced that this group moves on, right? Walker has to go. I would imagine, you know, Hall has to go. Walker has to go. I'd imagine Hogard goes. Why are we convinced that, like, next year's, you know, Fears, Holloman, Cohen Carr, like, is that team going to really break through? And if not, again, like, are you worried that Izzo is going to somewhat overstay as well? Yeah, unless he hits the portal, which Michigan State should have money. They got the brand. Tom Izzo's put a, you know, a lot of guys in the NBA. So, well, all, uh, all, all I'm going to say is that there's a, a surging, surging Midwest coach with ties to Michigan State uh, who's young and knows how to attack the transfer portal. Did he also get blown out by Kentucky this weekend? No, no, no. I was talking about Drew Valentine. Oh. <laughs> <laughs> yeah, look, that, the, Kentucky, the Kentucky game is wild on its own. We'll talk about that in a second. Uh, I just want to like, kind of go big picture on the Big Ten. Um, seems like, you know, Purdue is going to win the league. You know, up two games. You know, they have a tough finish, but they should win the league regular season. Illinois continues to kind of confound. They've taken a huge step back defensively that I, I don't quite understand. I think teams have been teams have kind of figure out you can just attack them in the middle because they're playing Coleman Hawkins so much to the five. I think early on teams teams were afraid to attack switches and it didn't 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 pound the ball in as much. And I think lately teams have been able to just score at the rim. But you know, how about against Iowa? They they called uh, Nicolo Moretti's number. He was very close the game. Supposedly, yeah. it's very good. So, look, I, I like Illinois. They're deep. They have shot makers. I think Terrence is starting to play like Terrence. Um, again, Coleman Hawkins is Coleman Hawkins. Like, it is what it is. He's going to be inconsistent. He is going to make dumb decisions. But I do I do still like Illinois. I just think that their, their ceiling feels capped at all, right? They feel like a team that wins, you know, one or two games and then folds, and one or two games and then folds. So, you just see how they finished. You know, the Minnesota this week on Wednesday, you see this playing well. And then at Wisconsin, home Purdue at Iowa. So it'll be a, an interesting close for a team that's 10th in Ken Palm right now, but doesn't feel like an overwhelming team. Wisconsin has obviously struggled quite a bit. Um, you lost five of their last seven. Um, and the two wins, home Maryland and home Ohio State. Not exactly the most, like, rousing group. Um, Northwestern seems to be closer and closer to the tournament, 19 and 8. Kind of approaching like hard to screw up territory unless I think I think unless they lose out their tournament team, uh, and then Nebraska still you know plugging away. But I think I think we're at six and nobody else. Um, I was pretty close still. Like if 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 so they have home Illinois, they have at Northwestern and home Penn State I believe. Yeah. Um, yeah. So they win all three, they're probably in. 19 and 12, quad three loss to Michigan. But that's adding two more quad wins, uh, quad one wins. Maybe even quad one A. I don't. 
know, know the cutoff for that. But. I don't think Northwestern would be a quad one A, but Illinois probably would be. Um, yeah, I think there's a path for them. They're probably the best hope right now. Um, then T rank has Ohio State coming up. I know they're still six and eleven in the league, so they obviously have to win out to get the nine and eleven. Then it's still going to be dicey, but right at nine and eleven, there's at least a sell because you would be you would you would have the non-conference win over Alabama on a neutral, right? But I mean, they lost they lost at home to Indiana, which is terrible. I think they're I think they're they're out because the metrics don't like none of the metrics love Ohio State. So like, what's the sales pitch? That's fair. Well, the, I mean, the, the, they would have home Purdue, neutral Alabama. Yeah. And I mean, we can pull up and then at Michigan State today. I mean, that's so that's three that. really good wins. You're right. You're right. You're right. You're right. Um. And then. Go ahead. Sorry. Where Where are we on our weekly Woodson check? I was going to say, it feels like the biggest story in the league is that, like, Indiana is just, like, full face plan at the moment. Um, did a we, sorry, did a we talk Holtman yet uh, last week? Yeah, yeah, we did. Last show. Continue on. Uh, what's, yeah. yeah, I think we're at a place where, with, with, with Woody, like, it's obviously really, like, it's obviously really bad. Uh, and it's getting toxic. Um they also have a tough, tough close. Like, are they beating Wisconsin on Tuesday? Probably not. Are they winning at Maryland on Sunday? Probably not. Are they winning at Minnesota? Probably not. Are they beating Michigan State? Like, if they lose out, they're 14 and 17, 6 and 14 in the league. Like, really bad. Um, I think, so, so, so I think the interesting calculus here has been, if you were going, like, for all season, the narrative has been, doesn't really feel like you fire Woodson, but maybe if you did, like, you would do it because you knew you were hiring Dusty Man, right? Like, you had everything lined up. And I still think that that's, like, the most likely outcome, assuming things, you know, if, if it were to open, it's, like, it's done for Dusty. But I do sort of wonder, and again, I've, I've had, I had a, a big debate with uh, John Martin and Randall Sotis after the CA today about, like, the merits of, like, the Florida Atlantic criticism, and I think most of it's kind of unfair. But I do sort of wonder, like, is Dusty that, hot a name like yes he's a hot name yes he could get a job but at what point do indiana fans just say he's archie miller and like like i've already seen it like i've already seen the indiana fans saying well why can't we get bruce pearl why can't we get chris beard why can't we get nate oates why can't we get like a dude right like why can't we go out and get one of the best coaches in college basketball why do you have to get dusty may and I think the easy answer to that is, like, if you're going to fire Woodson, you need someone who, like, understands how to unite the family and do all that. Um, but I also think, I, I guess I guess I would have said this. I think I, I would have said two weeks ago at this time, I would have said the chance that Woodson was the coach at Indiana next year was, like, 75%, and that the chance that anyone else was the coach other than Woodson or Dusty May was, like, 0.5%. And now I would say that the chance that Woodson is the coach at Indiana next year is, like, 50% and that Dusty is the head coach is like 40% and there's like a 10% chance that like, you know, NATO, Chris Beard, Bruce Pearl, you know, whichever big name you want to toss in there, it's the next head coach at Indiana. Yeah, I'm kind of with the Indiana fans in, in the Dusty May might just be 
Archie Miller, Tom Crean, Mike Woodson 2.0. I mean, what he did was obviously incredibly impressive. You know, making the Final Four last year. But, like, was Florida Atlantic, like, that much better than, like, Mike Young's Wofford team or, you know, any of these kind of pop-up mid-major darlings? They just happened to get a lucky draw where they got the 16 seed in the second round. Um, and this year, while they're still a good team, it still looks like they're going to be an at-large caliber team, although they're slipping. Um, like, is this really, uh, you know, move heaven and earth to get this guy? Look, I think after Dusty beat Arizona, there was a feeling of like, holy, you know, holy shit, this is, like, this is Brad Stevens, right? And... Indiana fans obviously have their own history with Stevens and you know, not completing that destiny, I think, means something to people around there. And like the idea of like, all right, we could bring on one of our own and he could be like Brad. Like to me, like they think that, that was powerful. And now that it's like, all right, like he's gonna lose the American, you know, they're they don't feel like a team that's likely to make a deep run in the NCAA tournament. Like why are we so enamored with this guy? I will say this, like I think Dusty, I think Dust, I, I think I think it's ridiculous to sit here and be like, all right, Dusty's massively underperformed when they started the year 36 on Ken Palmer at 34 today. But I'd also say this, like, I think every fan base has a very inflated sense of self, um, has a, you know, believes they can get much better candidates than they, they actually can. But I understand why Indiana's sitting there being like, well, like, why can't we? Why, why why are we only allowed Dusty May? Like, why can't we try to go get X, Y, and Z? Again, don't know they can. Don't know that the money's there for. Like, I don't I don't know that there's you know 10 million plus buyout to spend on Nate Oates or you know any of these guys. Like I I don't I don't see why that's realistic. Uh, I don't know I don't know why anyone believes that. Um, but we'll see. I don't know. I mean, I guess staying just quickly on the American. I have no faith in that that Dusty is going to win the conference tournament, um, so I'm I'm penciling in a second bid there. I mean there there are some like decent NIT level teams. Um, I don't know which which one's going to win that league. I mean I I, I think SMU probably ha- has the best metrics. USF hasn't lost in like 15 years. Memphis probably has the most talent still, and FAU has you know the continuity and the experience and everything. But um, yeah, I don't know which direction I'm going, but I know it will not be Dusty. So I have a bigger picture thought on that, like the American thing, um, and I think it, it applies to a lot of these like you know second tier conferences. Uh, I'm not a favor of in favor of NCAA tournament expansion. I don't plan on spending a lot of time on the show on on that topic. But I do think big picture, it's crazy that they're. I, I, I also even off NCAA tournament expansion topic. I think you know there's so much discussion about the metrics and oh well, the metrics are so terrible. And I think for the most part, Brad and I are like metrics believers, right? Like like we 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 operate based on the idea that Ken Palm slash Torvik is right, and we use that as a guide, and then we like meander off of that from there. Um, that being said. I think the concept 
that a team like Florida, a Flor, uh, South Florida, excuse me, that in the non-conference, yeah, look, the main game is the main game, whatever, that beat Florida State in the non-conference, that beat Loyola Chicago, who's winning the Atlantic 10 in, in the non-conference, um, that is now won 17 of 18 or 18 of 19, whatever the, you know, this ridiculous, 19 of 20 that, that South Florida's won, that will be, at the end of the year, Something like 25 and 6, 26, you know, like like that, that they're, they're winning, you know, if they lose in the conversation, they're like 25 and 6 or something along those lines. And the fact that that's, that team does not sniff the NCAA tournament to me is crazy. Like, quite honestly, like they're going to be an NIT bubble team if they don't win the conference tournament. No, they'll, they'll put them in the NIT. The uh, uh, NIT still has 32, right? Or is it down to 16? It's 32, I believe. Yeah, but there's a lot, a lot of spots to fill. Yeah, they'll, they'll make it. But no, I do I, not think that that they deserve to make the tournament. I'm not even saying that they deserve to make the tournament. I'm just saying like it is wild that those teams are not even in the conversation. Like 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 someone asked me, um, like is Loyola on the bubble? And I was like, no, Loyola has no chance of getting in at large bid. Like, well, what happens if we if 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 we win it at say Bonaventure, we beat Dayton at home this this next week? That's two quad one wins. Like, look I, again, I, I don't know. Like, 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 look, Loyola, Loyola Chicago could very very well be twenty six and eight winners of like twenty of twenty three with a non conference like that played they played a bunch of people in the non conference have two or three quad one wins and have zero shot at the tournament, right? Like. Again, I, I don't, I don't know, I don't even know what my take is on this, um, because I'm not saying that those teams like quote unquote deserve to be in the tournament or whatever, but I do think like, like there's a, I guess the way I would put it is that there's a growing divide. Like it feels like those teams are not like they're not even close. Like and that, that to me feels crazy. Like you're in a top ten league, you won 26 games, you're not anywhere close to the NCAA tournament. So I have a bunch of takes. First of all. The beginning of the season has to matter. USF screwed up royally. Um, sorry, you're done. I mean, sure. So did Loyola Chicago, like 100. percent And then there's other teams we could do. We could go down the line with, like 100. You know, the, the the first thing that you you point out with USF is though they beat Florida State and Loyola, but that's kind of my whole issue with like the ACC fan mentality is we we don't think these teams are good until it's time to puff up. It's usually a, a mid mid major rest mid-major resume um i remember there was a belmont team where they beat like georgia tech who was like sub 100 and people like oh they beat a power six team in the non-con it's like we we can't talk about how they're mediocre and how they don't deserve to be in the tournament and we want mid-majors instead and then when the mid-majors beat them we 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 hold that win up as a resume win Right. Secondly, well, yes. The only thing I would say in retort, in retort to that is that the opportunities are not there, right? Like, like, like Loyola does not have the luxury to schedule a bunch of great games, right? Like Loyola got into an MTE this year that they played Boston College and Creighton. That's great. They won one of those two games. Um, they played FAU on a neutral. That's awesome, right? Like, but those are the, like, there's just not a lot of opportunity. Like they played home and home with South Florida. That's great. But again, like, 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 I guess my point is like, I'm not disagreeing with you about uh, with, with everything that you're saying. I'm just, it feels wrong that you're nowhere close. If you, 
it feels wrong that you can accomplish that much and your season is three days in March. And that's just, and again, that's college basketball. Maybe I'm like, maybe I'm like randomly coming to the conclusion of what everyone has known forever. And I've known that for a long time. Obviously I've been around mid majors my whole life. And, you know, I'm, I, I'm, I'm no, I'm no stranger to that, but like, I don't know. It, it feels more ruthless now at the cut line for some of these like high mid major, low high major programs, depending on how we want to define them. That you know traditionally I think had a chance to get in if they just had a great year, and now it feels maybe, maybe it's honestly it might be because of the Mountain West like gobbling all these bids, like the SEC is now gobbling a bunch of bids that like had not in the past. But it just feels like the bubble has really shrunk for teams of that ilk. Well, well, that's because this year the bubble is very strong. I've been saying that since January. I think the the biggest aspect of that is what you first mentioned, the Mountain West getting six, um, when normally they would probably get three, you'd say. Yeah. Um, And the A-10 and the American are ripe for bid stealing. And the the Pac-12 is going to be two or three. Um, But the Big Ten, ACC, Big East are all going to be five or six. Um, the Big 12 is going to be like eight or nine. So there's just so many bids. Uh, but the fact that the bu- bubble is so strong. But now every day you see people bitching about the quadrants. And it drives me crazy um, because they never mention margin of victory. Always, oh, you know, well, how is, you know, Seton Hall's five and five in quadrant one and this team's one and eight. How are they 30 spots? Like if you are complaining about the quadrants, and you don't mention anything about margin of victory, you're done. You're doomed. You've already lost. You're a fool. Um, but those people complain about the quadrants, right? Quadrants are clearly not the best system. I think it's it's more and more apparent that some sort of formula is the best system, whether it's strength of record or wins above bubble, whatever formula you want. Because um, like, people are freaking out about the binning the teams and how – it changes during the season. They, they just can't handle that. They can't handle, you know, how like Wake Forest lost a quadrant one win when Florida went from 30 to 31. Like for whatever reason, they just can't grasp that. Like the season is not over. People are going to move up and down. Um, but well, I, I also just think, and sorry, sorry to cut you off. I, I think people that also don't understand like the, the, it, it's like they don't they don't seem to grasp, but like the committee does not operate on a blind resume. Right. right? Like they know that they beat Florida. It's not it's not it's not it's not just, just because you watch a blind resume thing like they have three quad one wins. People say, well, that's stupid. You could be one, two and three and you could be 73, you know, 73, 74, 75 and they count the same. That's not how it works. Like, like No, if you think that you're just a, a, a fool, like. I, I will bet my life that if two teams had, for whatever reason, the exact same Nets, Ken Palm, strength of record, they were equal in every single metric. The only difference was that one team won at Purdue, at Houston, and at UConn. And I'm on the strength of record page, so I'm just going to use strength of record. Uh, the other team, three quadrant one wins. We're at Vermont, at Xavier, and at NC State. I will <laughs> bet my life that the team that whose wins are Purdue, UConn, and Houston is seated significantly higher. Even though because everything else is equal, they would have bad losses. I don't. I guarantee you that. But so the the reason why I brought that up about people complaining about the quadrants is that if we did seating so or sorry um, selection 
solely on strength of record. Right here are the teams that would be in that are currently out and vice versa, right? So won't be exact because I'm doing this on the fly, but roughly we'll say the top 50 teams, right? Sure. So teams in the top 50 of strength of record will be in, teams out or out, all right? So um, Princeton's 32. Ole Miss is 34. Indiana State, 37, we'll count them. James Madison, 41. Syracuse, 46, I guess. Um, the strength of record loves Syracuse, yeah. And Butler, 48, right? So we're, those are the six teams we're adding. The six teams were taken out, right? It's like Colorado, New Mexico. Villanova. Yeah, Vill- Villanova's hanging around on some people's. Texas, Texas A&M's A&M. hanging around. Yeah, um, yeah so I kind of messed up because I don't have six teams to take out. But you, you get the point. I mean, so even doing strength of record, we're adding, what, Princeton, James Madison, and Indiana State would be the three kind of mid-major darlings that you would want to get in. And we're losing. And one of the teams that we're losing is a mid-major in New Mexico. So that doesn't really solve your you know solve that problem too much. Right. Well, I think the, 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 the one thing you could say. So again, I'm not saying those teams those teams are turning into it, it's about the conversation, right? So South Florida and Loyola Chicago were my two examples. South Florida is 60th and 65th in the two resume metrics. So they're 62.5 average. Um, Loyola is 52 and 77 in the resume metrics. So 64 and a half average. So they'd be like knocking on the door. Those teams are screwed right now because of them being one, you know, a hundred basically in the, 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 the quality metrics. And again, look, I, I think the one, the, the thing I would, I would say is, is, you know, is this like, there will be a lot of people who go to bat for Loyola or for a South Florida or for a, uh, you know, a team of, of that ilk, right? Because of those numbers, they say, oh, this is crazy. But they like they would consider the idea of Syracuse making the NCAA tournament this year like preposterous. Syracuse is the exact same case. Syracuse's case is that they're if you actually look at them resume metrics, their resume is much better than people realize, and that their quality metrics suck because they didn't blow people out and they've gotten blown out, right? Like that's the that's the that's the jest. So, do you want to talk Big East bubble? Yeah, to do it. I mean, it's, it's, I mean, Jerry, Jerry Palm thinks all five Big East bubble teams are going to miss a tournament. I don't know what Jerry Palm has been, like, on this year. I feel like he's been particularly, like, controversial. Because I think he's one of these people, and now these, these people are popping up every day. They're, it's this quadrant one plus quadrant two plus quadrant three, which is just – it's completely fictional. It's – it's coincidental, right? Like any team that's going to be below 500, and, and and I saw someone tweet the four years that we've had a net, you know, the net NCAA tournament era, there's been five teams to get in with below 500. So it's not like that's not an eliminating factor. Yeah, this meaningful games metric that people have thought up, you know, quadrant four is not meaningful. Again, like. This is where, like, I like you lose me, right? Like, 
So, so, so what makes playing like, why is it meaningful for Villanova if they had beaten St. Joe's at home or beaten Drexel at home, but Providence beating Milwaukee at home is not, not meaningful. Like, those games have to be eliminated. Like it, it, it makes no sense. And we all know quadrant three is a bad loss. Like, Right. That's I'm pretty sure that's on the NCAA's like bare bones ex- explanation is that like quad three and quad four losses are bad. Yes. But like now quad because th- the the only teams that can be below 500 in that quad one plus two plus three and still be in tournament contention are in the Big East in the Big Twelve, Correct. maybe the SEC because there's no quadrant three games really. Correct. You you only play. Quadrant one and quadrant two for the most part, right? Where like the Big Ten, you get so many quadrant three games. Where if you lose them, you're out of the tournament anyway. And if you win them, now you're magically ahead on this fictional metric that doesn't tell you anything. Right. Like, uh, well, and again, there is because all these metrics move, right? Like you, there is a small marginal value as a um, as a bubble team by beating quadrant three. Like I'm sure who's a, who's a, who's a quad three home game in the big 10 Indiana. Yeah. Indiana. Right. Like beating Indiana home has like a small positive benefit for like your strength of record and your KPI and whatever. It doesn't really move the needle much otherwise. Right. Um, so I understand why you would say, okay, well like that moved the needle, but like, you know, beating DePaul like doesn't, right. Like I I understand. I, I, I at least like understand the premise but like the conclu- like the result is not adding up. Also, like the idea that like you're eight and nine in meaningful games, so you don't get to it doesn't count. But like if you're nine and eight in meaningful games, you're you're totally fine. Like that makes no sense to me. Right, because like Pro- Providence has played zero quadrant three games. Correct. They have is five. Is Georgetown quadrant three? Yeah, so they they get that next week. There you um, go. But they have five quadrant one wins, zero bad losses. And Jerry Palm's like, yeah, I don't think so. But like, Colorado, I think, has a bad loss and has, like, one quadrant one win. There are metrics, are actually, okay, but there are other teams. I mean, like, even Seton Hall, who most people have above Providence, they have two quadrant three losses. Providence is zero. That doesn't make any sense. But um, T- T-Rank has basically five, maybe six Big East teams. There, his kind of thing is Villanova with where their T rank is, at least pre UConn game. Um, they would beat Georgetown, they would beat Creighton at home, and then they would split between Providence and Seton Hall on the road, which would give them two more quadrant one wins, keep their loss total at 13 going into the Big East tournament, and therefore put them in. Which seems plausible. Um, I think Villanova's in if they go. If, I think Villanova if they have th- if they have thirteen losses if they go three and one down the stretch. I think that makes them a tournament team. And I still think, and the numbers kind of back it up. If Butler goes ten and ten, they're making it. Barely, but they're ma- they had an incredible strength of schedule. Again, they'll have no bad losses, and they'll have, you know, what. Four really good wins, two, two of which were on the road. I will say this. If I'm Villanova or I'm Michigan State and I'm sitting here somewhat on the bubble, like Villanova on the outside looking in, 
um, Michigan State on the inside looking out, if you will. Um, I will say I'm reevaluating how I schedule moving forward. Yeah. Because if you're like Villanova played a top 50 non-conference ranked schedule, the reason they're not going to make the tournament is because instead of playing like truly terrible teams, they played St. Joe's, they played Drexel, and they played, you know, like, again, you should win those games. But they played a big MT. They played a home and home with, or they played Maryland. They played a home and home with UCLA. They played Kansas State, and they played all their, what, you know, their, their their big five games. That's really hard, right? If Villanova, if if Villanova swapped out playing, again, you know, realistically, because they lost, you know, they they won the UCLA game and they lost to St. Joe's. Like it's hard to to mess mess around with this in the same way. But if this was a weaker non-conference schedule. And Villanova was, you know, instead of going in with four losses into league play, they went in with two. They're like a surefire tournament team. They're a block. Stone cold. Yeah, and that's, that's what I was saying in November with, you know, why is Villanova playing in this big five? Like, it gives them absolutely nothing. Like, these teams are terrible. And they're and once every five years, the, the teams beat Villanova, and then it's a huge issue. Like, it's now back-to-back years, right? Because they lost to Temple last year. Um, this year, they lose all three games. There was the year after they won the national championship where they lost to Penn. Um, and it gives them no benefit. Yeah. Um, so, yeah, I don't know. It's, it's hard. Um, 15 and 12, I do think, yes. I think their magic number is three. If they go three and... If they, if, if they go three and one, they're in. If they go... I don't see how you're going to put in if they're 17 and 14. So then they're a 15 loss team. Let's say they're 18 and 15 after a conference tournament. I don't see how you put in a 15 loss team that has like three quad threes. That that to me like the math doesn't math there. Um, I think Seton Hall's comfortable. I think Providence is in good shape as long as Providence beats Villanova at home and Georgetown on the road. Um, for, For Seton Hall, they have a very challenging schedule. Yes. Um, they have at Creighton and at UConn this week. Uh, but then they get home Villanova and home DePaul. So if they win home Villanova, home DePaul, they are definitely in, 100%. And obviously if they won one of the big road games, they're definitely in. Um, if they lose to Villanova, then it's like, ugh. Then it's tight. 12-8 and eight with the two bad losses. I think they're okay. Think they're Maybe so UConn. Great. Yeah. Yeah. Uh, um, and Marquette. Yeah. That that Creighton triple overtime game is really, uh, if uh, they end up missing the tournament or end up in Dayton, that is going to come back to bite them. Um, and then St. John's is back in the mix, sort of. They have a very easy closing slate, which is bad for the team needing to make up ground. Um, but they have at Butler, which is basically an elimination game this week. Yeah. And then they close with DePaul and Georgetown. Yeah, if they lose at Butler, I think it's over regard unless they like made a run to the Big East Championship um at minimum. Uh, I think if they beat Butler and then close with DePaul Georgetown, they're eighteen and thirteen. I still think they'd probably want one win against a good team. Well, that's but, the or- issue too. Whoever finishes sixth and seventh in the Big East opens their conference tournament with DePaul or Georgetown. And I think right now you'd say 
it's probably the winner of St. John's Butler will be the seven, and then Villanova is probably the six, which is good for Villanova because they need they need to you know get a better win loss record. But for Butler and St. John's and Providence, that that would not be a good outcome. Right. Well, it's tricky though because if you play the eight nine game, then you have to play UConn. Right. If the if the thought and you have to play UConn at the Garden, right? Like if the thinking is that the best chance is playing, like that, that what you really need is a big win. I think I'd rather play DePaul the day before, only have to play like ten minutes of action before you just like slide into you know, cruise control, and then take my shot at Marquette or Creighton, right? Yeah. I think the con the 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 concept of having to beat UConn at the Garden to go to the NCAA tournament just feels very feels very steep. Feels like an uphill battle to me. And you know, I I think it it is appropriate for us to still talk about these Thursday, Friday, you know, maybe even Saturday games as potential needle movers, even though the committee has ignored them the past couple of years, because they're going to ignore them until they're not, right? Like at some point, they're going to hear the criticism that they don't consider the games and they'll end up considering them. Right. The, yeah, the committee, the, they, they, they pushed back a lot. I saw David Warlock was like yelling at Rocco Miller on Twitter for, for claiming that, uh, Claiming that they, they ignored games, even though they they have said that they ignore the games because it's too late in the day, um, or too too late in the week. Um, and then another weird bid stealer quirk is that the A10 and the Americans Championship is both on Sunday. Correct. So if Dayton and Florida Atlantic are in the championship. The last two bubble teams are going to be holding their breath, literally down to the wire. It's going to it's going to be fascinating um, watching that all play out. You know, let alone if there's a bid stealer in the Big Ten or a bid stealer in the SEC, um, which is not going to be. You wouldn't think. Texas A&M and Ole Miss are slipping. Ole Miss, I think, is probably cooked. Yeah, that was that that was obvious like a month or so ago when you looked at their schedule and it was just too tough. It's like they're they're gonna lose the tough games and now they drop a couple easier games like home South Carolina, and and you're done. I mean they they have they have home Alabama this week, which is kind of what I'm talking about. Where everyone's gonna pick Alabama. I would I would assume Al- Alabama probably wins, and then you're even even further down blowing a home game. If they win that game, then they're back alive. But assuming they lose that, I'm not even sure. Like, where can they where can they move the needle? Because then it's at Mizzou, at Georgia, home A and M. So then then they're like, you know, even if they won all three and they're a 22 win team, who have they beat? Right? Then their their best win is Florida at home. Like that's not a tournament team. Um, oh, uh, yeah. So it's funny because the bracketologists and now I've I've looked at maybe. 10, 15 different bracketologists. They just keep popping up on my Twitter and they look at them. They're split into two camps. The people who do the bid thieves, the people that don't. Yes. So the people who don't basically can't fill the field with that last spot. They're either doing Ole Miss 
They're doing Utah. They're doing Villanova or Butler. Um, there, there's just no real great candidate for that last spot. I've been on Utah forever. I, I, I mean, maybe finally, maybe this this Colorado blowout over the weekend, like, settles the noise. But like, like they've been cooked since this Arizona State result. People try to like talk 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 them back in once they played played. They beat UCLA by a point on the road. It's like, all right, like no. And I understand that their resume, they have a road, they have a neutral win against Wake Forest. They have a road win against St. Mary's and they have a home win against BYU, which is sneaky, like incredibly impressive. But I just don't quite understand how they can be a tournament team at seven and nine in the league right now. So yeah, maybe, yeah. Look, maybe if they, maybe if they finish strong, like win their last four, they're 20 and you know, 2011, uh, yeah, then they get in. But. Yeah. And in, in that um, Utah and Colorado's, splitting the L.A. schools was sneaky huge for the Pac-12. Because given all the bubble carnage, both of them are, are right there. Um, some, you know, if, a, if, if you don't have the two bid thieves, yeah, it's either Utah, Colorado, Ole Miss, Butler, or Villanova, or, or even like Pittsburgh, you're putting it in, into your field. Um, so that spot's still up for the taking. Um, yeah, look, I think it'll be it'll be interesting. I mean, look, Washington State is in. They beat Arizona. That's huge. It does feel like the Pac-12 has to get a third, right? It just feels wrong, the concept that it wouldn't. But it also, like, again, who's getting it? Like, I know Rocco on Field in the 68. Could you guys all check that out? Uh, Rocco was like, oh, Oregon sneaky could be, like, first four out right now. Um, but then they turn around, they lose to Cal. Again, it's not a bad loss, but those are the games you have to win if you want to make it. Like Oregon does have at Arizona still, so if they're going to hand out a quality win, I just think I just think it's been like maximum carnage, right? Like UCLA has been feisty all of a sudden. USC knocked out Utah the other day. You know, like Oregon's got Colorado and Utah left. Like it feels like all those teams are going to split, and if they all split, they're not, none of them are getting in. And then and they need to put their weight behind the strongest horse, Colorado. Colorado. Right? Yeah. yeah, yeah. Colorado's got all the, got, got got all the metrics. They actually look like a real team. Like they're healthy put, now. Yeah, let's put let's put the weight of the world behind Colorado. Get a third Pac-12 team in there. Although again, it is crazy to think about. Like I don't think I watched a Utah game in the non-conference. Like I might have watched. I might might have watched when they played um, St. Mary's a little bit. I, I I didn't watch St. Mary's. Game. I don't remember why. I think I was flying. Um, Utah I watched them play St. John's too, which, and I, I watched a little bit of the BYU ending, and like at the time you're like, oh well, you know, who knows how any of these wins are? St. Mary's stinks. Wake Forest was, you know, slow to start, and now you look back, they have a monster non-conference resume, like a monster resume, because Road St. Mary's is like an elite win all of a sudden. Their demise was greatly exaggerated. I mean, not not really. They've had they've had to win like 15 straight games to get <laughs> to get back in it. Um, well, yes, but not at like a six seed. So if like you're an 11 seed, right, and you're in 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 your choices for your six seeds, right, Clemson, St. Mary's, Michigan State, Dayton, Washington State. Mississippi State, like, are you scared of any of those teams? Not at all. No, I, I think I, the one I'm 
least scared of is Clemson. Oh, I'm the least scared of Dayton. I think Dayton's like not a tournament team right now. Yeah, that's yeah. Dayton, Dayton probably more so than Clemson, but I, I am not scared of Clemson at all. They are not athletic. Like their best perimeter scorer is Joe Girard, right? Like he's more than uh, Chase Hunter, I think. Um, yeah, it's, they, it's gonna it's gonna be interesting to see which teams like emerge as like the teams playing those games, right? Like if the those like like, again, like, if you're, like, FAU and you wind up as, like, a 10 seed, that might not be the worst thing in the world. Right, because if you're so, – so you're pretty screwed for the second round, I think. Like, I think those, all those top four seeds except for San Diego State right now are, like, legit. And plus Kentucky who's knocking on the door. Um, I would be scared against, like, almost every one of those teams. Um, but – you know, if you're an 11, like, like if you're Seton Hall or Wake Forest, I mean, I I think you're you're gonna come out and crush Dayton, Clemson, maybe even St. Mary's, who has good metrics, but they're just not athletic. At least like Mississippi State and Washington State are very big, um, but like Clemson plays two bigs, but they're not that imposing. I think the only thing I would say is, like, if I could draw, like, like there are certain teams I wouldn't mind. Like, if I, if my path was, like, my, if, my, if, my, if, I'm a, if I'm an 11 seed and I beat, beat the 6 and then I get, like, Baylor or Duke, like, I'm not, I don't know, I'm not, like, quaking in my boots. Yeah, I, I could see that. But there's just such a stark drop-off from the 4s to the 5s. Agreed, yes. Especially if you switch Kentucky and San Diego State. Well, like, so, like, like Wisconsin, it, 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 what's funny is like Wisconsin has kind of like Wisconsin has hung around around that number because they have like the twelve quad one and two wins, but like Wisconsin has sneaky been like terrible for the last like month. Yeah, Providence can't play them because they've already played them. Um, which sucks. But yeah, if, if I'm eleven seed Providence, I think I want. Yeah, Dayton, Clemson, St. Mary's. Sign me up. Um, any thoughts on the uh, Hilltop Hoops tamper list? Oh, yeah. This was awesome. <laughs> it's funny. Like, at first you're like, yeah, this doesn't serve anything except to try to get some attention, try to get some shine from Chili Tr- Donovan. And then you think, well, couldn't this hurt Georgetown now that you're publicizing their tamper list? Uh, and now teams can say, oh, if Georgetown's going after these guys, we can certainly get this guy and then come over the top with some more money. But I I, I think the point that some Georgetown fans are making that, you know, the coaches already know this. This, this, this might be new information to the fans, but people plugged in have known this for whatever, a month two months, however long. I think that's valid. Um, I, but it is I, funny. So, how, so, so let, me, let me say this. Sorry um, to cut you off. I think the names that Georgetown is tampering with are all known names that are going to be in the portal. Like, full full transparency. I have, like, it is, it is not news to me that Danny Wolf might transfer. It's not news to me that Doug McDaniel might transfer. It's not news to me that Judah Mintz might transfer. Those schools all know that. 
I think Georgetown being so open that they have $5 million to spend and that like, they're itching to do it is a really bad idea. Right. And, but at the same time, like, if we're recruiting, you know, Judah Mintz and Cooley's like, all right, Judah, I got 700000 for you right here because we have a lot of money and we're willing to spend. And then I come, all right, Judah, I think a good number for us is 400000 And he's like, well, Cooley's paying me seven hundred. Right. Even that information is getting out there just right. by the offers and the, and the bidding. Um, right. But, no, I do agree in theory that publicizing that you have so much more money to spend than everybody and and you suck, you are going to have to overpay for everybody. They will be the most easily leveraged. I mean, look, there's all sorts yeah. of stories. Like, you know, I remember, I think Norlander wrote it. Like, the story of Janai Broom, where Janai Broom was being recruited by Florida and uh, Auburn, and the number was, like, 200000 And then... Like, Janai Broom, basically, like, Janai Broom's camp told Florida and Auburn all of a sudden, like, we have a $300,000 offer from Wake Forest. And they were like, hold on, like, we know Wake Forest doesn't actually have NIL money. Like, like you're an idiot, right? Like, like why would we buy it, buy this? Like, but everyone's going to do that shit. Like, every, every, single t- every single NIL agent who is getting going to have a kid recruited by Georgetown, they're going to say, oh, the, you know, the price is 100 you know, the, the, the price is 200, the price is 300. And then, you know, the, the, you know, Georgetown, you know, Georgetown's going to push back on numbers. Like, All right, well, we just got a 300, we had a $400,000 offer. And, and Georgetown's going to have to be smart enough to like walk away from the table with some of these guys. Right. But again, just, again what purpose did it serve? It's really the challenge, right? Like there's no benefit to Georgetown to announce this so publicly, whether there's how much downside, I don't know, but there was certainly no benefit. Uh, and the fact that you know the Georgetown message board has been like this for a while too, but like just the confidence that yep we're gonna line up Doug McDaniel, Judah Mintz, Jaden Epps, Dontre Styles, and Danny Wolf next year with uh, Bryce Hopkins coming off the bench and it, it's like, like why do you think you're gonna get all these guys like this, again back backtracking backtracking. Why, why do you believe that a Jaden Epps, Judah Mintz, or a Jaden Epps, Doug McDaniel backcourt is not going to be terrible? Those guys are all losers. Like, all they've done their entire career, all three of those guys, is lose. I did see a good point from a Georgetown fan, though, that at least it raises the floor. Sure. I mean, well, okay, how high, how high is the floor? Michigan's 8-19 with Doug McDaniel. Why is the floor so much higher than Doug McDaniel and Jaden Epps? Again, the, that is fair. Um, it's also funny they put like Bryson Goodin on the list. Yes, like Bryson Goodin, who Cooley never played for two years at Providence, and he's yeah. averaging what like twelve points a game at Fairfield. Like, I would be stunned if Bryson Goodin was like, you know what, Cooley, I'll, I'll give you a third chance to play me. Bryson, in my Gooding final is year shooting, of eligibility. He is shooting the piss out of the ball. So again, I would not be floored if they took Bryson Goodin. And if he was willing to go back, great. That being said, again, why am I spending NIL money on Brett? Like, why am I going to, like, if my options are, like, like, I would, I, like if you end up spending $200,000 on Bryson Goodin, you're the dumbest people alive. 
Like, like, there has to be some sustainability in this. So, so let's say that their lineup is actually, yeah, Doug McDaniel, Jaden Epps, Judah Mintz, Dontrez Styles, and Danny Wolf. Is that even a tournament team? I'm saying no. And maybe maybe I'll look stupid because I actually love Danny Wolf. But that team would give up 7,000 points per game. I mean, the bench, you have like all, all the freshmen basically coming off the bench. That defense would be horrific. Yeah, yeah I, I don't know. I, I don't really buy the plan. I, I don't mean to be too critical of Georgetown. Like, I, I think Cooley's a good coach. I think we both agree that Cooley will like probably figure it out at Georgetown and not suck. But like, it is kind of wild that like that's where we are, right? Like, I don't know. I just, well, first of all, just like the idea that this list is like a public thing that like, no, 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 like again, it's one thing when it's trilly, right? It's one thing when it's like anonymous, right? Hilltop Hoops is like, I, who covers Georgetown more than Hilltop Hoops, Brett? Like, is there another account? Is there another? Is there another? Um, no, like he, he has his name on it. I think the kid. Correct. Yes. He, he, it was funny because after after the incident, and I'm not going to name him, um, because uh, uh, he, he he said to me. He, he DM'd me because I was trying to figure out what his background was. That so was like, how, like one, how does he know this? Like whatever, like, like there was a problem. I mean, did, did Georgetown tell him whatever? So I looked him up and like, I clicked on his LinkedIn and I immediately get a DM from him being like, I saw you viewed my LinkedIn. Please don't reveal my identity. I'm like your name is on the bottom of the website, dude. Like, like you're not very smart. Like what are we doing? I, I think it's obvious the c- connection, right, is Cooley is going to the NIL people. Correct. To get funding, and he probably knows some of the NIL people, and they're telling him this stuff, which is the same thing that happened last year with the whole Justin Moore to Georgetown, Hunter Dickinson to Georgetown. All, oh, we got all this money going around. Um, Cam Spencer, you know, it's cl- clearly Cooley is getting quotes from the NIL people, you get, like money quotes, um, and the N- NIL people are not keeping their mouth shut. Yeah, that was point. like the same thing, you know. The whole Fanta Goodman Blue Demon thing, and everyone's like, "But Fanta said he watched the video." It's like, it's so obvious, people, what happened. Like this random kid interviews John Fanta for ten minutes. He sends it. You know, Fanta says, "Okay, I will review it, tell you how it looks." The kid sends him an hour and a half long video, and Fanta's like, "Fuck this! I'm not watching an hour and a half." Because I also didn't watch the hour and a half video. And then the kid puts it out and their Fanta's face is on this as they're talking about like Jared Grasso doing drugs. And he was like, what the fuck just happened? It's it's really unbelievable. But like, anyway. The whole Big East Twitter people thought that John Fanta sat there and watched their hour and a half long YouTube video. Um anyway, where were we? Um, I don't even remember to be honest with you. Uh, Providence. So we we, so we got so we got the, the the Georgetown Tamper list off of our chest. And then the other thing that we needed to get off of our chest, and we we may have to circle back to college basketball or the carousel or whatever at the end of the show. But Brad, I, I need your I need your G League Ignite thoughts. So in case people missed it, at All Star Weekend last weekend uh, in Indianapolis, Adam Silver said they are re-examining the Ignite program. For a number of reasons, obviously, number one is it has not been overly successful from a, like, development standpoint. You know, a lot of the big names have either 
underachieved or at least like met you know there, there hasn't been like a huge smashing success and even like the, the one you think you would name is like marjan bochamp and like he's like the 10th man for milwaukee right like marjan bochamp. The, the point of this program was not to take a top 75 recruit three years later and make him a first round pick correct correct um and, and you know there's again there's all sorts of things one the team the team itself stinks it costs a lot to maintain the roster is much more expensive. I mean, think about this. The first, I believe Jalen Green signed to G League Knight for like $125,000. Like, that's like an Atlantic 10 transfer these days. Yeah. <laughs> so no. the number has gone from like, all right, I have to pay like 125 you have to pay like 500 plus to get these kids. Because otherwise, what, they're going to go to college. They're not, yeah, they're not winning. They're not developing. The, the the NBA doesn't no longer has this like theoretical like moral imperative to make sure that kids are getting paid because college kids are getting paid. So like, what is the incentive other than that like if the kids want to go pro, they should have an avenue other than like going to Australia. That's really it. Like they don't want to get get on a plane and go scout RJ Hampton and Lamelo Ball. Well, now college basketball is pro, right? You saw that with UCLA's class and. You know, most of these international guys have seemingly bust this year. I was thinking about Lazar Djokovic earlier, who was supposed to be amazing. He's not even in, in the rotation at Xavier. Um, but, yeah, so the whole Ignite thing never made sense in the jump. They're not tied to any one NBA franchise. All 30 owners, like, pay into it. They don't get draft rights. We said that from the beginning. Um, and, you know, their stocks were, you know, all over the board, right? Like, some guys were moving up like Bochamp, but the whole idea was to get these, you know, top 10 picks. And the irony is, this year, they're going to have, like, the most top 10 picks of any year. And this is the year that they're going to shut it down, probably. Well, it's funny um, because they may have, you know, two, two to three high picks, but all of them have been disappointing. NBA people were not are not pleased with how Ron Holland's experience has gone. NBA people have cooled on Matas Buzelis. Like Tyler Smith is like whatever. Like none of these guys have like moved. Izan Almansa has been disappointed. Like, all these guys they, they may get drafted because like they recruited a good class of G League Night players, but the year of G League Night has been poor. Right, but like you're you're gonna look up this year and Holland and Buzelis are gonna be like top five picks. I'm not convinced either will be a top five pick, but yes, I understand your point. The issue is if not th- if not them, then who? Correct. Um, and like t- you mentioned, Tyler Smith, who kind of gets lost in the recruiting shuffle because he forego forewent his eligibility so early um, as part of the OTE with with the Thompsons and everybody. Um, but yeah, they're they're getting guys drafted. The guys aren't like flopping totally in the NBA. Like Jaden Hardy fell a ton in the draft, but I, I, I think he's been okay, right? Like, it, it, it like hasn't been a disaster with the development. It says the draft stock is slipping, and the whole thing that we said from the very start of this is what the hell's the point of this? Right. The, well, the, the hit rate has certainly not been substantially higher, right? No. If the NBA was finding, and, and look, there's been a lot of like, okay, like, is the NBA hoping to because, you know, Adam Silver made these comments alongside a lot of comments about, you know, being frustrated with the state of youth basketball, state of, like, players when they come to the NBA. 
right? Is the NBA planning a more drastic measure of like an academy program or something where, you know, elite players can be somewhat like an an incubator, if you will, right? Like, uh, you know, all right, like we want, and maybe those guys wind up in college, right? Theoretically, right? Like a lot of these NBA international, NBA academy kids overseas are winding up in college. Johnny Furphy um, is a prominent example of that, but there's plenty, I mean, um, and and seemingly, seemingly a growing avenue every year. I know like Loyola just took a kid from Egypt, from NBA Academy. Um, Dave, Davidson took one from, I believe, in England, um, from NBA Academy. Like they're ev- these kids are everywhere. So, um, you know, maybe something like that expands. But like, again, like the, so the NBA is spending, you know, several million dollars on this, right? They built an arena, they did everything, right? Many, there's many, many millions of dollars on this program. They're not... Like they're not developing better or substantial. They're not coming into league substantially better than the college players. They're not. They're not hitting when they get drafted at a substantially higher rate than the college players. They're not. You know, they're they're not providing a great product for the league. They're not like growing as a brand. Like people aren't tuning in to watch G League night. Like overtime elite. Like I, I give OT credit. Like OT has become a, a successful business because. They've figured out a way to make people care. I don't know. That, I don't know why. Like, I, like, I, I, true, truthfully, it is a mystery to me why people are like very invested in overtime elite. But like, they've been able to brand and market these kids, whether it's you know Eli Ellis or even some of the higher rate recruits, Carter Knox or whatever. They've been able to brand these guys and brand these teams and do content and put the kind of machine of overtime behind it. Like, the NBA has very much struggled to do that. Like, like every G League night guy kind of falls into the into pitch black. And it doesn't help that none of these kids play whenever they're banged up, right? Like Ron Holland has like a weird, uh, like a minor hand injury. He's done for the year. Scoot Henderson of the concussions. Like they, we don't, we don't even get opportunities to see these guys. Yeah, because so it, it, they're, they're not playing to win. They're playing to like preserve or increase their draft stock. They're playing a whole different game. Right. That's not of interest to anybody. Like even the most ardent draft fan, like the draft Twitteriest person of all time. Like they, I think they want to watch these guys in competitive settings. They don't want to like watch these guys get shut down and, and like play protect the stock. I agree with you. I agree with you. Yeah, I mean, even like this NBA Academy stuff feels like a waste of money. I know Ethan Strauss was saying for China, like the NBA has invested like a bajillion dollars in China after Yao Ming exploded and they can't even get another Chinese player in the NBA. Um, I think they're investing in China though, more so in the idea of like building fans of the NBA. Right. And to do that, they wanted more Chinese superstars like Yao Ming. Right. And they can't even get a Chinese NBA player basically. Well, well, Japan has two. Rui and uh, U- Utah Watanabe. Oh, Utah, yeah. Um, yeah, look, I, I don't know. I think I think the academy programs are so, are, are less expensive than G League because you're not paying the kids and you're not paying for like huge overhead or whatever. You're just like identifying talented players that are already going to be identified. You're bringing them to the states. You're getting you're you're making sure that NBA teams can get eyes on them earlier in an easier setting and you're feeding them into college programs 
right, where they can develop or feeding them into G League or, you know, whatever. I, I think at least there's some logic to that. But from an expanded standpoint, right, again, if the system's not – like, why would the NFL spend a gazillion dollars to make – like, to replace college football when college football does the development for them, right? As long as yeah. college basketball – as long as there's boosters willing to pay all these kids money and there's fans willing to watch these games and the players aren't coming into the league completely unprepared – then there's no incentive for the NBA to continue to spend the amount of money they're spending or spend more money and build some like huge academy system to replace the college game. Right. So, because again, college college is not the problem, right? Like like people people, I am not I'm not trying to defend college basketball. College basketball has lots, lots of issues, but college basketball is not like like when you hear the narrative of oh you know kids don't know how to defend they're not yeah. You know, they're all about themselves, like all, all of the like, you know, traditional like tropes about like kids not coming to the NBA prepared, American, you know, bad American players, whatever. College basketball is not the problem, right? Like if anything, college basketball is like too rigid, too structured, too slow, like, you know, whatever. If you want to play high school AAU, whatever, like, again, I, I'm not, I'm not trying to be like the AAU bogeyman guy, but like it is certainly not the fault of college basketball that like, Kids are coming to the NBA and don't know how to play within a team structure. No. I, yeah, like you could point to, oh, there's too much mid-range. There's right, you know, yeah. too much but wacky styles and ground, you know, micromanaging. Right, that doesn't seem to be the complaint. It seems to be, it's, it seems to be that they don't like the fact that people, they don't, they don't like the fact that these kids are coming in and they're all trying to be like Steph Curry. Right, they need kids who are like ready to play, ready to be like part of a team. Speaking of NBA draft, are we cool with the top college prospect being Cody Williams? I am, yeah. Yeah. I think I love really Jacoby good. Walter. I obviously love Devin Carter. I'm kind of slipping on my man Donovan Klingon. I am trying to do this off the top of my head, but who else? Oh, uh, Dalton Connect, I, I, I like, I guess, but, you know, it it it, it uh, does feel like slim pickings. I love Jared McCain, but again, he, he feels like an 18th pick in a normal draft. You're right. There's a lot of guys, like Devin Carter, Jared McCain, uh, I think Pell Larson is kind of in this category. There's a bunch of guys that are like, that guy's going to be a useful NBA player, but you're going to have to overdraft those guys to get them. So instead of being like, oh, I would love to get Devin Carter in a normal draft of 27. I'd be like, all right, cool. Like, here's this kid who plays hard as shit, defends, makes threes, like can handle it a little bit. NBA bloodlines will be professional, right? Like been coached, like all that. Cool. But like top 10 Devin Carter doesn't like feel great. And I love Devin. I'm starting to believe it. Like, the assists are going up. The three-pointers are still going down. He's scoring more at the rim off the bounce. Yeah. I'm starting I'm starting to feel it. But, um, yeah, oh, overall, I think everyone has to agree that, that, that this draft class is pretty weak. I don't, I don't buy the Filipowski thing at all. Like, not one iota. Yeah, I don't get it. I don't. I. I think he's destined to bust. He doesn't shoot it well enough. 
I don't know what his percentage was is, but like he's not super mobile. He's not super physical. He's like pretty skilled, but like his shooting isn't great. Like I don't know. What else we got? Uh, carousel wise, I think we we've talked about Ohio State. If you haven't on this podcast, Chris Holman's out, as we said. I've seen people trying to push Jake Diebler to get the job. Like that's absurd. Um, I will say, like, I think it's going to get interesting in that everyone assumes Ohio State can hire a sitting high major coach. And I guess the easy name for that is Sean Miller. But Sean Miller, as we record today, is 13 and 14. I know they had two games against Georgetown and DePaul last, so they it's 15 wins. But, like, are we 100% convinced that, like, Ohio State's hiring a guy who's under 500 this year, who's never been to a Final Four, right? Are we 100% convinced that they're hiring – Lamont Paris, who I think probably just winds up getting an extension. I think we've talked about this on the show. I think, I think the most likely outcome with Lamont is he gets an extension. Uh, it's not going. It stays. Uh, are we 100% convinced that Greg McDermott's not just going to stay at Creighton? I think there's a good chance he does. Like, Porter Mosier is a $6-plus million buyout. Why am I hiring Porter Mosier, right? Like, like they're they're just okay, right? Like, I, I don't know. Like, I, I think there's, a, like, a pretty real world where Ohio State winds up being, like, Nico Medved, Dusty May, Drew Valentine. Um, Isn't this what always happens though? Where like yes, these teams have like these such. I I, I don't even want to call them delusions of grandeur, but just like um, a little too confident of the new coach, and then it ends up just being like, wait, we fired Mark Mark Turgeon and hired Kevin Willard, aren't they kind of equal? It's like yeah, but change is good. And then we're just going to keep riding the carousel over and over. And look, I think it'd be a mistake to not hire Sean Miller because Sean Miller is one game under 500, right? Like, to me, that's, you know, you're missing the forest for the trees. But hey, I said last pot, I think Sean Miller is the best coach in the Big East. You love Sean Miller. Yeah. yeah. <laughs> you're all in. Sorry, what were you saying, though? Um, look, I. I I, I just think there's a there's a path for Ohio State to not be let's say a huge job or a huge huge name, but we'll see. I mean, it feels like a lot of guys want these high major jobs because of NIL. Like there's a lot of conversation like, oh, you need to get to one of these elite high major jobs because of NIL. Like you, you know, like I mean again, how about this? Like I'm not convinced that like Ohio State shouldn't hire Shaheen Holloway. Yeah, if Seton Hall's NIL is really that bad. Then how are they going to bring back Kadari Richmond and Dre Davis? I don't think they're going to. Yeah. So they're probably going to be bad. No, I mean, look, I, I think Shah- I think Shaheen has to leave if Louisville or Ohio State offers him a job. And I'm not convinced that either of them will. I'm not convinced he'll really be a candidate. But, like, shit. I would think about it. Like, again, if we're talking high major coaches... Like, Shaheen, to me, like, here's a guy who's winning without a ton of NIL, who's been to an Elite Eight, who I, I think the one thing you would say in criticism of Shaheen at Seton Hall is he has not recruited at the level that you would have expected, right? When he got the job, I think initially they, they had a bunch of big names, big name recruits on campus. I think there was a belief, like, oh, like, here we go. Like, Shaheen is going to crush it. But then, you know, of course, Shaheen did get that job in the infant stages of NIL. 
So he's never really had an opportunity to go get players because they haven't had money. I think Shaheen would be a high-level recruiter at Ohio State. I mean, anyone with access to NIL is going to be a high-level recruiter, but, I mean, he's clearly a great coach. Like, if, if uh, Seton Hall goes 13-7 and seven in the Big East this year, like, I mean, there's nothing more to say. I mean, I mean Shaheen, she, so, so, so Shaheen to me is one of those names where, like, I look at it and I'm like, all right, now that's someone I can understand how we get to that point, right? Like, I feel the same, honestly, about Chris Collins, right? Like, no one is talking about Chris Collins for these jobs. And I, 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 I have been the most critical Chris Collins person on the internet. I understand that, whatever. I was like, look, if Chris Collins makes the NCAA tournament twice in a row at Northwestern, I feel like we're going to work our way down the list pretty quickly and be like, well, that guy would be pretty good, right? Like, if, if, if being high major is a requirement, right? Like, if, if, if Ohio State refuses to hire a mid-major coach, which is possible that they will, like, again, like, like why not? And I think and again, you could throw Kyle Smith in there, too. Sorry, go ahead. And I, I, I think you could throw Kyle Smith in there, too, where I feel like if McDermott or Miller leaves – Creighton or Xavier has got to get Kyle Smith on the phone, like, immediately. I think Kyle Smith goes to Stanford. I think you'd rather have Creighton or Xavier than Stanford. I agree, but I don't know that, like, I, I think Kyle is best at a bad job. Like, I, I, I think that's, like, I worry about him at Ohio State. I worry about Creighton. I worry about, like, like, to me, like, Kyle Smith at Stanford, dealing with the academics, he's been in an Ivy League school, it's the Bay Area, he's back to that, like, to me, that makes all the sense in the world. What about Mitch Henderson? Then he, I think he's number two at Stanford. Yeah. Not Kyle Smith, it's Mitch Henderson. And then Washington, still uh, Leon Rice? Uh, Nico and Sprinkle. I think it's really just Mountain West pick of the day. Yeah, what, what do we make of Danny Sprinkle? I think like, someone's going to hire him. It's funny because, you know, Jeff Linder had that great run, you know, the, the great early success at Wyoming and since, you know, it's been pretty bad. But I, you know, that's, that, that's such a tough job. Danny Sprinkle, right? Like he takes the two best players from Montana state and he gets Utah state with like a, you know, fringe rotation guy in Maryland and they're like borderline top twenty-five. It just doesn't feel real. It feels, it feels like a house of cards. It feels like I should want to see more Danny Sprinkle before we immediately call him up to the high majors. So the only the only thing I would say in response to that is that if Danny Sprinkle had stayed at Montana State and had won won the league again with Darius Brown and Great Osibor, um, even if they didn't win a tournament game, like if they won the league three years in a row and then you know twenty-five wins, you know all those years. He might not be like the most exciting hire for Washington, but I don't think he'd be out of the question, right? Like that's fair. You would just be saying, oh, you know, like I kind of wish that. You know, you, I don't know why you didn't hire Nico because like Nico's you know in the Mountain West, he's doing a higher level, but like Sprinkle seems to be doing a good job, right? Like so the fact that he now has like, the proof of concept here in the Mountain West, a higher level, like to me, I think it, I think it's fine. And who are some of our candidates to replace the Mountain West guys? Um, I think internally at Colorado State, it'd be Ali, Ali Farouk Manesh. Um, oh, no internal hires. 
I think Utah State would open up. I don't know who they would hire. Um, they've traditionally always hired uh, sitting head coaches. So, like, David Riley could be a name at Eastern Washington. He's also supposed to be, like, a Boise name if Leon were to go. I think Colorado State's the most likely of those three to internal. Uh, I don't really think there is a name at either Utah State or at um, or at Boise. Obviously, Utah State would be weird because they didn't go internal at Montana State. So the staff came along, right? Like, it'd be weird to then, like, a year later, be like, that's what we want to do. That, that, like, that was the uh, Mike Boynton. That's what I was going to say, Mike Boynton. But there was never even, like, a thought at Utah State, or at Montana State, excuse me. Like, it wasn't like, it, it wasn't like oh, like, we interviewed him, we liked him. Like, it was literally, like, always it was going to open up, so. I mean, um, how weird is it that Ryan Odom leaves Utah State to go to VCU, and they're in a much worse conference? I'm sure he's getting paid more, obviously. That's why he left. Um, and U- Utah State's a much better team, even with Shulga and Bear still going with them. Yeah, VCU's good. I think the thing that's challenging was what Odom was never like a fit for like the Pac-12 jobs. Well, first of all, a lot of these Pac-12 jobs have really dragged their feet, right? Like you would have thought maybe Washington would open a year, you know, a year earlier. You would have thought Arizona State was going to open last year. It didn't. You would have thought that you know, Oregon State would open, it didn't. You would have thought Stanford would open, it didn't, right? So, like, there hasn't been as many opportunities for people out west to get jobs. And Ryan Odom was always seen as kind of this, like, East Coast guy. But then, like, these East Coast jobs are coming open, and it's like, all right, like, you know, are we hiring Ryan Odom from Utah State at, like, X jobs? It just felt weird. So he had to get back east. So he was like, oh, and I take, like, South Florida or VCU. Turns down South Florida, gets VCU, takes VCU. Like, it's just tricky. Whereas like Sprink is like a true West Coast guy. So Danny Sprinkle was um, the, the issue. I have Danny Sprinkle. Danny Sprinkle has never been a high major. Danny Sprinkle though has been a really successful mid-major assistant. He has ties to Montana State. He's an alum. So he went from Montana State to um, and he he goes from I believe Cal State Fullerton as an assistant to Montana State. Cal's obviously successful run at Montana State. So he's like a he's he's a much more like easy plug and play hire as a you know West Coast school. And again, whether that's you know Washington or Arizona State, you know Stanford, we get USC if it opened next year, right? Like all those, right? Like maybe Sprink, like like you know, Spr- Sprink is just a much more natural fit out west than Odom is. But it'll be interesting. It's, it is crazy that they've been as successful as they have. Um, again, I, I don't know. It, it'll be interesting carousel. In that, I think Washington's almost a lock to open. I think Stanford has a good chance of opening. I think Oregon has a decent chance of opening, and Oregon is a weird job. In that, Oregon is, um, you know, Oregon and or, or Oregon feels like a place that should hire a high major coach, right? Oregon is Nike, it's all the money, a Big Ten. Like, I'm very curious if Dana Altman retires or is fired or whatever, Brad. Like. And we don't need to do too much carousel here. Otherwise, we'll, we'll, we spend another hour on the show. But I'm, I'm just curious with Oregon, like, where do you where do you go? Like, do you just go to the Mountain West pool? I feel like the Mountain West pool is such like a group of like nerdy guys, right? Like, not that Dana Altman is like Mr. Cool, but like, is Nico Medved like gonna walk around in Jordans and like recruit? Like, it just feels weird. I mean, shouldn't Oregon have all this money though? Shouldn't shouldn't they be one of the high end money teams? They, I think they are. So, so they could pull, you know, muscle men or, you know, one of these guys itching to leave. 
Yeah, what's what's up with Musselman? Are we still on uh, him definitely leaving? Uh, not convinced that he can get Louisville. I think he wants like Arizona State, but will Arizona State even? They don't even have an AD. Did we talk Amir Abdurrahim yet? Not really, no. Maybe send him to Oregon. You're a big Amir guy. Everybody's a big Amir guy these days. Well, I mean, the the Kennesaw State stuff was crazy. And then, I mean, I, I, I think it's different than Danny Sprinkle because of how bad South Florida was, and he just flipped it immediately. Right, I can see the similarities. Like, oh, it's just one year after doing a good job at the at the previous you know low major spot. And he brings a couple of his best players with him, but like no one thought South Florida was going to be you know any any good at all. Well, I think most people had Utah State like at least being mediocre. You know, at least coming in you know sixth or seventh in the Mountain West. That's true. Anyway, um, anything else you really want to get off your chest before we wrap the show up? Hmm. Um, not really. Yeah, well, I got, I got nothing. Good stuff. Well, it's good to have you back. We will be returning next week with our first pot of March. Crazy thing to say. Uh, keep it moving.